Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and presenters at Metatopia 2019. Episode 250, Integrating World Building into Traditional RPGs. Presented by Ryan O'Grady, Kenneth Height, and Brennan Taylor. Are we at, or are we have I think we're in. This is it. Here we go. All right. Well, everyone was going to be introducing world building into traditional RPGs. Um, any brief introductions? Brennan? Sure. Um, should I get this? If you wish. All right. Uh, hello. Uh, I'm Brennan Taylor, and I am a uh, game designer. Uh, I've worked on uh, a game called Bulldogs. And I have uh, also created a game called uh, Mortal Coil, which is not a traditional RPG, but it has things that you could steal for your world building for traditional RPGs. So. I'm Kenneth Height. I'm a, a role-playing game designer pretty much full-time. Uh, designed such games as Trail of Cthulhu, two Star Trek games back-to-back, many, many more. Uh, in the space that this topic is about, uh, and as we will clarify shortly, I think my most relevant immediate credit is uh, Bubble Gumshoe, to some extent, co-designer, which has a uh, town creation sort of, it's not quite a subsystem, but it's a sub-thing that you do in the game. And then also uh, Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, which I was lead designer on, which took stuff that had been present in OVO in like 3rd edition Vampire brought it up to the front and made you do it as part of character creation, uh, coterie creation, uh, to create a shared uh, power base, etc, etc. And that is sort of the meat and drink of what I believe we've decided the panel is about. That's right. Uh, And we will clarify that briefly. Uh, I'm Ryan O'Grady. I'm an information security consultant by day and a part-time game designer by night. Um, we're working on Nova 6, which is a, a more narrative-focused game that includes elements of, of world shaping, as we're going to talk about. Um, however, let's be clear, I don't belong on the same stage as Brennan and Ken, but here we are. So, uh, don't sell yourself short. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so let, let's, let's clarify what, what it says on the title, which is world building, and what it says in the description, which is giving players kind of the reins of changing and shaping the world. So what we're really here to talk about is, is giving players that agency to change the world through their actions, not creating the setting in which the game takes place. What, what Ken call, is called world building, I misclassified as something else. Ken and literally everyone else in the world. <laughs> so, so we're here to talk about how do you give players more agency in shaping the world in which they're, in which they're playing. And the sort of classic example, the first big example of this is uh, when you get to be 10th level as a fighter or whatever it is, you can build a keep, right? And you attract uh, a man at arms, and suddenly you are your keep is a little part of the world that you control, and you're running it, and it has responsibilities and possibly an effect. And that was very, very early and very, very intended at the very beginnings of the hobby of the art form, uh, and has been followed to one degree or another ever since. Uh, the perhaps the canonical example now 
is something like Ars Magica's Covenant creation, in which you are establishing uh, the uh, common resource that all the uh, party holds together. Uh, I, uh, it inspired Vampire's uh, uh, Coterie creation, and then I formalized that with 5th edition. Other examples include uh, Cell creation from Conspiracy X, uh, and other games where you um, have a resource that is at least affixed to impinges upon the world as a whole. So it's not the same thing as um, a Microscope, which is a classic game of pure world building. Uh, nor is it, and then somewhere along that spectrum, you hit uh, Dresden Files in Fate, where you all sort of together decide what's uh, magic-y about Toledo or whatever the city is that you're playing in and then all the way down to I have a keep, it is like every other keep there are many like it but this one is mine um, in D&D and we are, I think the intent is to talk about this end of the spectrum not the microscope, start with earth building your setting into your game part of the spectrum which is what my talk is about at 6. Right. So yeah, that's one spectrum we're we're talking about how do you how do you incorporate that into a, in a way that manifests itself in the game. So, how can players take actions that then matter later in, a, in an in-game context? Um, so, you already mentioned a couple examples that do that pretty well. Ars Magica, of course, being kind of the, the classic example. I think D and D Fifth Edition includes it with the downtime activities. Um, in, in my personal experience, it, it's kind of missing the and it matters portion of things. Right. It feels almost like a side exercise. Mm -hmm. um, what are other games that do it in a way that is meaningful from the you know in-game player uh, character perspective? Well, you're asking me. Yeah, I'm asking. <laughs> anyone wants to answer it? Well, I already <laughs> answered it, so it's true. Brad's answer. Yeah. Uh, so there's a there's a variety of games that have this. Uh, I feel like uh, that the fake games actually do this a lot uh, with uh, just the actual uh, aspect creation portion of it that you can actually build things out the players actually have the agency to create things in the game and to add things to the game uh, just through their actual actions. Um, Would you say that that's like the bronze rule where, where you can treat anything as a character? Is, is that how you're kind of um, creating and personifying these elements of the world? Right. Uh, they call it sort of like a fractal system, mm -hmm. which is that you can start with the personal and you can have some control over that, and then you can build it up to, you know, uh, so now this city has these aspects, now this, now this nation has these aspects, now this planet has these aspects, right? So mm -hmm. those, those, those aspects, uh, there are tools in the game where characters, where players do that, acti do an activity that creates these things that then uh, further define mm -hmm. the world. And then there are other story games that have similar sorts of, uh, I mean, Something like the Quiet Year is is absolutely uh, yeah. it's sort of you know horseshoe effects because it's both. Yeah, you're creating the world and you're very much altering the setting mm -hmm. moment by moment. Moment by moment. Right. Um, I feel like even like Apocalypse Engine games do a similar thing in that when you uh, create when you make your characters, you've, you've, you're making definitions of what exists right. in the world because the, the the just the act of choosing what characters you're playing in the game changes how the world is going to be working and perceived. Yeah, and that's I would put it maybe closer to the world building, the I microscope end of the yeah, spectrum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, another uh, great example that is 
almost never followed because game designers are a, a timorous, cowardly lot, is uh, the experience system in Ray Winninger's underground role-playing game, which was a satirical superheroes game done in the 90s, 93, I think. And with your experience points, you could either invest them in whatever else you invest experience in, or you could change your neighborhood. So you take your three experience points and you get working streetlights for your neighborhood. Right. Or you get a, a farm co-op so that everyone gets nutrition better. And you're changing the parameters of the neighborhood that you live in. And of course, that has its own knock-on effects okay. mechanically. And it's an interesting example. Like, it does actually matter from a mechanical standpoint later in the yeah. game. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know the chances of you know cops coming by go up if the neighborhood's got more prosperity, for okay. example. Um, there is a similar sub... As calling the subsystem is almost um, uh, trivializing it, but in the game Damnation, in the book Damnation City for Vampire the Requiem, there is a lot of ways to provide mechanical values for aspects of cities, and uh, there are subsystems that I don't know if they were ever used in play, but they are very, very thoughtful uh, and very much worth looking at, and we looked at them very much for Vampire 5th Edition for how to intersect values of the city uh, which can be anything from you have a better chance of evading a pursuer to you have a better chance of finding a person to murder um, and then having those values change depending on you know how you uh, how, how you alter that in play mm -hmm. and so the uh, the damnation city does it far in, in deeper detail and far more loudly and also far more uh, granular scale than Vampire the Fifth has room to do, but it's an it's a it's another best of read example that I don't know if enough people have read and internalized and considered themselves unworthy of. Yeah, and I will talk about Mortal Coil a little bit too because Please. yeah, it's Please got uh, the the magic mechanic in the game. Um, basically, there's the world building microscope side of it where you create the uh, parameters of the world at the beginning of the game, but then when you're actually playing the game you have tokens that basically create new facts about how magic works that uh, essentially work to your advantage or to your enemy's disadvantage. Um, and then the uh, opposing party, either as the GM or the, uh, or the players, so if the GM creates a fact, the players get to decide. And if the players create a fact, the GM gets to decide what the uh, catch or drawback or what you know, exception. exception is for that. Um, I, I feel like, to a certain extent, there's a, a a meter. You know, the more effort you put into this world building, the more mechanical it is, the more effort it requires. Where the more narrative approach maybe is going to be a little more seamless, um, but has less of that integrated feel. I mean, how do you decide as a game designer where on that spectrum your game belongs? I mean, to my way of thinking, a mechanic exists to serve what the game is about. If your game is about love, there better be romance mechanics in it, otherwise it's not about love. If your game is about fighting vampires, there better be stakes and fangs in it. <laughs> if your game is about uh, making the world a different place through your actions, there better be mechanics for that. Uh, people who've been following along will notice there are no games about that except for Underground. Um, and so the, the, the thing is, if you're saying part of the, uh, in, in Vampire, for example, Part, a big part of the, the uh, play experience is the vampire is trapped in their city and has to live in it. And so the city's qualities affect their lives, uh, their own lives, 
<laughs> over and over and over and over again. So those qualities at least have to be mechanically present. Once something is mechanically present, it should be uh, something that the player characters can alter because that's what mechanics are for. That's what player characters are for. And so you have to decide to what extent are these mechanical presences a core activity or a major part of the activity. In Fate, you decide. It's like, we're going to just spend a lot of our time putting aspects on city blocks and, and, right. and the neighborhood co-op, or we're not. And uh, Because Fate is literally about nothing. It's the Seinfeld of role-playing games. <laughs> and so, what you... Uh, but if you're designing a game with a stronger central story or a stronger central theme or a stronger core activity, is that core activity about that? If it's just D&D killing monsters and getting treasure, how many keeps you own is really an afterthought, mm -hmm. just as it is in the game. Um, the notion that Gary apparently had that your goal was to integrate yourself into a feudal society was never supported by any edition of the rules. Um, although the D&D, of course, came out with the uh, birthright system and a couple of other sure. sub-games that had uh, Kingmaker-style uh, qualities to it. And, of course, I think there's... Adventure Conqueror King is a yeah. OSR game that is all about that, and so that has some stuff. Um, and you can look at other games that are similar, more or less like that. And, and so it's really a question of, to what extent is this core activity in your game? If it's not core, do as much as is needed for flavor and then stop doing it because you're just distracting everybody. If it's, the more core it is, the more important you're expected to act like it is, the more I think it's incumbent upon you to make those mechanics, mechanics. matter. And the thing is, just don't lie. Don't say, oh no, we're superheroes and we fight for so social justice and there's no way for your world to change. Well, then you're not superheroes who fight for social justice. You're cosplayers who punch people, just like all superheroes. That's Ryan Payne. Succinctly what I think. <laughs> and again, nothing wrong with it. I love superheroes, but don't delude yourself that your game's about anything that it's not about because you didn't put anything in your game to make it about that. You just put a bunch of earnest, you should feel this way text, which, whatever. Uh, and, and just so you guys know, I, I have a bunch of questions I'll keep asking unless you guys have questions, in which case, let, it, let us know. So, uh, Labes in the Dark has a pretty robust system for uh, players to, uh, initially to, you know, what kind of gang are you? What, are you, what, is, your goal, what, are, what is your immediate goal in like, going after this part of territory? And then ongoing, it has ways to set up. Uh, oh, you, if you want to do a thing, you can set up, set up a block to open a project. Right. Uh, does, does that fall on what you're talking about here? Or? It can, but the thing about Blades in the Dark is that the clock, as, as you apply, it can just be a, an ongoing project that has got nothing to do with the setting per se. Like the clock might be, we're just setting a clock to steal a, a big shipment of nutmeg. And we don't want to play it out because we've done a million heists and it's a boring heist and we just need the nutmeg for something else. But we have to actually mechanically represent it because it does take time and resources. Or the clock can be, we're going to overthrow the church because those guys are jerks. That will have a big effect on the setting. But then once you've overthrown the church, and again, I'm not the world's biggest blades expert, and I'll bet Brennan or someone else can back me up here. There is a... There is a degree of GM fiat that is necessary to say what happens in the setting. It's not like suddenly right. everyone gains plus two piety and loses plus three composure because the church has been overthrown and now they're all, you know, uh, uh, evangelical Protestants. I mean, that's not, that doesn't happen. And it's because the factions are all defined 
but they're not mechanically defined. Yeah. So, yeah, those those things are definitely the GM then takes it and incorporates it, but that's you know that's up to them. Right. How it it, it, it doesn't have a mechanical salience. Right. Yeah. And the same thing is true of the project clock in Unknown Armies, which I think is parallel tech. I don't think that one came from the other. But the project clock in Unknown Armies, in theory, could be, yeah, we're going to assassinate the president. That's our project clock. We're just setting our timer. We're going to do that. Um, but it's not going to have a mechanical effect on the game. It's just going to be a, a, a alterate a, a, a piece of the wallpaper. Yeah, and, I, I, and it may be a very important piece of the wallpaper. Every time we walk in the room, we're like... What happened to the wallpaper? But <laughs> it's, not gonna, it, it's not going to change your die roll. By right. Hand. So it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. Change the core mechanics of the game. The uh, the the the. It doesn't have like a mechanical effect on right. how the uh, yeah. the characters interact right. with the world. Yeah. Or, or even a narrative effect. I mean, it, if you say you assassinate the president, and that doesn't actually matter in play, if it doesn't come up. I'm not really sure how that's you know yeah. shaping the world. Well, in theory, it, it, it would come up and you've assassinated the president, this, that, or the other. But to my arg- my argument is that's not really a setting influence. It, it's not a it's not on this end of the spectrum. Right. It becomes a very long way of playing microscope. Okay. <laughs> right. Where 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 you said you know if, if you played microscope and you got a, a card that says the president assassinated and you put that down in the middle of the timeline, well, we all know that's going to happen. That'll change the timeline. People will affect it. Right. But, you know, Microscope, of course, doesn't care, which is why Microscope is so great. But in an Unknown Armies game, if you assassinate the president, in theory, maybe there should be some other roiling effect. Right. Right? And that is entirely down to the GM and maybe the players to work out. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't... It's not way down here right. on the on the uh, underground slash D&D level. Side. Right? Right. I don't think. In, in, I mean, again... It's it's great it's great narrative feed, and it alters the world and it alters the setting, but it doesn't provide mechanical salience. It's not really a designer question. I mean, designers probably should plan for long-term projects to be in a game that is intended for campaign play, which is why guess what? I put a project system into Vampire Fifth because it had never been there. There was no way to do a long-term project in a game that was in theory about immortal conspiracies. So there we are. Well, that's yeah. Perhaps an oversight. Perhaps. Perhaps. Some would say. I also wonder to what extent these activities need to be extrinsic to the to the group or the characters. If I'm if I'm taking actions that are changing the composition of the player, the character group, or our own activities, is that really world shaping? I mean, that again, I think that depends on how much of your play focuses on that. Building a keep is. Unworld shaping if your character never goes back to it. Right. But if you keep all of your magic items there and you go back there and it's and it's the keep that's right next to the town, so it's guarding the tavern and the and the weapon shop and everything else, meaning it's a target for orcs and whatever, it is kind of shaping the world in a D&D way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of increased the challenge rating of attacking the town, which means practically it attracts worse monsters. Mm. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> that's how D&D works. Right, yeah. But that <laughs> but that is the D&D ethos and the logic. Right. Of D and D, but again, the Covenant is core play in right. Ars Magica because huge amounts of play happen in the Covenant. Right. And so the way you built that Covenant and find that Covenant and change that Covenant in play absolutely right. alters the game in a very mechanical, very real, and very narrative way. And that you know 
maybe maybe the far end of this poll should be Ars Magica, but Ars Magica, the Covenant, is so central to the play that it feels like it's over here closer to world, you know, shifting as well. I mean, Ars Magica is such a powerful example. Yeah, I mean, the whole game is structured around this idea of long-term activities shaping the world, that you, you don't have Ars Magica really without that. Right, exactly. That that, you could argue, is the core activity, is home renovation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> home decoration, the RPG. Right. Uh, any, any other so, questions? Uh, I'm, I'm curious yeah. uh, what folks uh, are working on here. Like, uh, are, are we all RPG working on our own RPGs here? Is everybody a designer? Yeah. Uh, how far along are you on your projects, and what interests you about world building is kind of what I'm interested in. We only have a few people here, so. Don't be shy. Yeah, go ahead. Um. Uh, I've been designing like a campy sci-fi setting to, uh, for people to play in uh, post-apocalyptic, so world building is like a huge part of it. Is it a part of the rules, though? Um, not currently. Okay. Is it something that you'd be interested in having part of the rules? Is that what you're yeah, here for? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, I've, I've been researching like Harm Manor. Okay. All right. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to get a temperature of the room real quick. Mm -hmm. Sort of. They also want to chime in what they've been working on? I mean, I'm working on a game about uh, immortals. Uh, not quite a mortal conspiracy, but uh, immortals doing nice jobs. Uh, and there is like an intersection of a world building that has to take place to set up that narrative of why these people are immortal, what comes after immortality, uh, where it came from. Uh, and some of that needs to tie into the rules. So I'm getting like some ideas on how to pull that off. This is more of a question. Um, yeah, fine. more a question than an answer. <laughs> more a question than an answer. That's fine. Uh, uh, Shane it, it literally just, cannot behave himself. <laughs> in, in thinking about many of the the wonderful nuggets of wisdom that have been shared with us today, um, have you seen any of that world shaping technology um, exist within? I, I would say a Lovecraftian sense, where you know. Can we actually have a meaningful impact on our ability to possibly be in better shape for the next Lovecraftian reveal that we have? Is it possible for us to even build up and make the world safe and make these horrors go away? I, I, I don't know what happens in, what is it called? Eldritch Dark? It's the one where they're Kaiju versus Cthulhu, oh, okay. or the robots, Gundam Cthulhu. I don't know. John Sneed wrote for it. It's Eldritch something. Eldritch Skies, that's it. Um, and there's Cthulhu tech also, speaking of terrible ideas. Um, so it would have to be a Lumley-esque setting like that for that to be thematically appropriate to what I consider a Lovecraftian right. game. Right. Now, I could absolutely see building an engine, and this is something that I've, I've even mentioned, uh, to uh, Shane and Dennis where you're playing as Majestic the wrong-headed American government conspiracy that seeks to weaponize the mythos and I can see a system whereby every successful mission meaning a mission where you bring back actionable mythos intel or or, or, uh, equip or artifacts um, contributes to some sort of score that you initially believe is like oh great we have more spells we have more cool stuff we can do we have this America's defense posture is thus, so our budget goes up, so our bureaucracy requests are easier. And all of that can feel like success, but if it was Lovecraftian, 
I would absolutely want to introduce something where, oh, right, and it also makes me way more likely to go insane uh, because I'm just too exposed to the mythos. Oh, also, I have to be a sociopath and I can't have as many bonds with people. Um, you know, because I'm, you know, sworn to secrecy, I can't talk about my work, and also I um, uh, hate human contact for some reason. Um, and then so for a system of building to be part of the universe in a Lovecraftian game would seem to me to be antithetical to it. And even a system where the player got to decide what got destroyed seems to be a little bit antithetical to it. Although, you, with modern Lovecraftian players, they, they've drunk the Kool-Aid enough that they would get, oh yeah, we really destroyed America's capacity to believe in itself. That's what happened. <laughs> and so a sort of an inverse of Ray Winninger's Underground, where your experience actually destroys the world around you as you um, uh, successfully uh, mine the mythos for power. I mean, if the traditional mythos is about personal descent into madness and right. horror, yeah. it'd be interesting to see a game where it's about societal descent into yeah. madness and horror. And, and there's been a number of attempts to do Lovecraftian apocalypse games and end times games, none of which have really gone in that direction. Although Cthulhu Apocalypse from Paul Grain does have some degree of, I don't want to say mechanizing, but uh, quotidianizing, you know, giving you values for different kinds of, of apocalypse, and that might be a starting place. But I don't think anyone has done it, and I think that 99% of the mechanics that we are talking about and that are used are antithetical to the theme, and you should not do that. But that's an aesthetic judgment, not a UK's. It is a UK's, but you're not obliged to follow it. You are obliged to follow it. <laughs> so, the board game, uh, Mountains of Atlas, yeah. does this in a weird way, because, um, so, as you, as you go towards the Mountains of Madness, you either try to get through the it as quickly as possible and minimize damage to, to basically your, your, your crew, your, the, mm -hmm. the, the scholars. Uh, but if you do that, you're going to, afterwards, you're going to, you're going to end up at best having a keeper nobody cares about. Like there's just the scoring thing is, oh, we, we, we've sort of saved our souls and we're still, we're still humans that can function with each other, like identifiably as, as people, but at the end of it, nobody cares what we found because we, we just abandoned to survive. Versus if you spend time trying to find all the weird stuff, every time you do, it damages you more and more. So when you finish, you can, like, if you follow all the rules, you can barely communicate with anybody else, but you, 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 you make a reality-shattering revelation to everybody, and you, your, your university ha is happy with you. And it strikes me that that's the closest thing I've seen where you have, it's a board game again, but where the, being successful at be, being successful at doomed scholarship ends up destroying. Uh, you then see the cost this brought all the all the members of the. And even that is still within the player group. And board right. games, of course, have far more luxury to be broadly mechanistic. Yeah. Than um, uh, than RPGs do. And I, and I think you know. The, the impact on the world of, of what happens within the context of the game is kind of left as an exercise to the reader, which isn't really building a world in the sense that we don't engage with it. Right. Uh, let's see. So, um, you guys want to talk briefly about kind of the difference between giving players implicit control over world shaping and giving them explicit control. So, implicit being you can take actions in the world, and those actions have maybe unseen, maybe seen consequences, but it's about kind of an abstract direction, whereas explicit saying, how are you changing the world? I mean, every, every non-one-shot game should be doing implicit world changing. Yeah. 
right? Even if it's only the internal world of this setting is changing because now I hate you, Dad, right? Um, ideally, what you do should have had an impact on the outside world because otherwise it's a fairly restrictive story component. Mm -hmm. um, maybe this is my old school trap bones talking. But, you know, at the very least, it should have had maybe an impact on NPCs in the same building as you or whatever. So I feel like implicit world change is always part of it, and that's the whole point of doing this as D&D or as an interactive art form at all. Right, yeah, uh, I feel like, yeah, you're, you're going to have a pretty uh, flat and not very interesting game if you're not doing at least a little bit of interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, even story. if it's on the level of, you know, the players have fought so many kobolds that when they fight the next bunch of kobolds, they're like, we hate these guys, we're burning them out. We're not going to leave anything standing. We're going to burn the treasure, for God's sake. <laughs> and now you've introduced kobold genocide into your world. And it's like, you know, that may just be a, a bit that they do as levity, or it may be something that you can then say, well, this guy's a kobold, and he knows that you're the kobold reapers, and he hates you. Right. And so he's going to do mean stuff to you, even though he barely knows you. And so that is a world consequence. But again, it, that is literally... It's not quite 101, but it's RPGs one one and a half, right? <laughs> 101 and a half. <laughs> right. And, and so I, I feel like implicit world building in that sense is so broad. It's not so loose in that it is a meaningful thing, but it's so broadly inapplicable that you can't, or broadly applicable, you can't meaningfully talk about it in this context because every game is going to do that. Right. So, so there's not you don't have a every game, game that wants to try and call itself an RPG. Yeah, or that, or that at least is intended for a second session of play. Yeah, yeah. In one session, you can say, you know, it is all about your personal descent into whatever or your personal conflicts. Right. And that's what happens. And then we're done and we feel really good, bad, indifferent, and we're good. Right. But if you have to come back to those same people tomorrow and pick up the miserable ruin you've made of their life, that should have an impact. Mm -hmm. um, so the... So, so the... I think entirely we have to be talking about explicit world changing because first of all the implicit is it's the fish in the water players don't even know they're doing it half the time right. and uh, a third of the time the GM doesn't know they're doing it even when they are doing it because it's just how they imbibe it well, I think Im implicit you know you could draw a distinction between what we would think of as implicit world building in a traditional sense where of course if the players are doing the actions in the world they're changing the world but there's a difference between that and kind of implicit world building where the the players are taking actions and behind the scenes that is having mechanical consequences that the GM, for example, is, is tracking and bringing back into play. But I think those are explicit versus hidden. Okay. If you're saying it's a yeah. mechanical yeah. consequence, I see. That if the GM is like, explicit, yeah. I'm going to, uh, the plus three hate reaction for all kobolds, that's explicit now because it's me it's mechanized. It's right, okay. But the experience of the table is going to be just the same, it's just secret. Okay. I mean, and again, most GMs won't even bother to do it. They'll just say automatic hate for kobolds, which is still an explicit reaction because it's a rules decision. Right. But they're not even going to think of it as a rules decision. They're going to think of it as a story outcome. And so, to, to me, as designers especially, we should be assuming that people are role-playing correctly, or not even correctly at all, <laughs> and then uh, telling serial stories at all, for God's sake, it's soap opera technology it's not even game technology and so then we can talk more specifically about how do I change the world what am I doing that changes the world what's my impact okay so I, I, I take that uh, so 
hidden versus you know non-hidden, visible, yeah. uh, explicit world building. Um, how how can you incorporate that into a game in a way that is minimally onerous to the GM? If I'm if I have a character sheet for the world and I'm having to track whenever they kill a kobold, for example, to say okay they've reached a certain threshold for what qualifies for being hated by kobolds, that could be a fairly heavyweight approach to that. Whereas yeah. if you kill you know a few kobolds, then you get the hated. Right. Those are two very different approaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say nine, maybe not even nine, maybe eleven times out of thirteen, I would say let the players track it. Yeah, they should know that killing kobolds is going to make kobolds mad at them. Right. That's and the that's the key technology there is is, <laughs> is move that from the GM to the players, mm-hmm. and then. I mean, if the GM has a secret, like, oh, the Society of the Red Lotus is secretly run by a kobold. Right. But, again, GMs are used to tracking that kind of thing in story anyway. But, uh, yeah, moving it over to the player side so that they have some responsibility for that takes care of your your basically cognitive load for the GM. Basically outsource it to your players. Yeah. And if it it is explicit and it has mechanical impact, it's much easier to get the players to actually buy into tracking it. Right. Because then they know that there's going to be some effect if they, uh, if they're, if if they, based on the actions that they're taking. And the, game. The, the most fun is they'll still kill the kobolds. They'll just, you know, cover up the crime or blame the orcs. <laughs> right. Uh, now we've got a fun role playing challenge. We <laughs> and actually, you might even take it a step further. You I mean, might, you again, might... in 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 Ice Black Agents, that the mechanic is called heat. Oh right. And if you do dumb things that the GM hates, then it attracts more cops. <laughs> <laughs> And that was stolen from frickin' Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I literally, you know, when I was like, how do I, every player is going to come into this game with a backpack full of plastique. How do I make this Knight's Black Agents, not Knight's Black Urban Redevelopment? Um, and the answer was, Keep. more cops. More cops. <laughs> Send more cops. Send more cops. <laughs> and it was like, Grand Theft Auto, those flashing shields. And I'm like, yep, there we go. Problem not solved, but at least for you know, headlined. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me take your you know Order of the Red Lotus example even a step further. And what if we make players track that kind of thing too? You know, they they now need to keep track of the fact that they killed the head of the Order of the Red Lotus. Well, I mean, if, if the order is a secret society and you don't know that, then you spoil the reveal. And the question is, I mean, to what extent are you allowing player knowledge and character knowledge mm-hmm. to overlap? And plenty of people say, never do it. I'm generally of the opinion that I'm playing with grown-ups and they can handle it. Right. But some things are just fun to surprise people with, and I don't want yeah, to... True. I'm selfish, and but I don't I mean, want to ruin my fun. Right. Of saying, little did you know that the head of the Order of the Red Lotus was a kobold! Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, God damn it, I should have recognized that. Kill him! <laughs> that's the big reveal, but I, I think you can also draw a line between, like, metagame knowledge, you know, you're watching a TV show and you see who the killer is, right. but the characters in the show don't. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's that's a matter of taste and a matter of game, too. Yeah. Like, each g- different games handle that differently, and different tables handle it differently. Um, I, I'm always for less secrecy, but I also do like to do the occasional kobold reveal, so, you know. Yeah. You had a question? Uh, or just, thought? Just the, the, I think there's a lot of power in the them knowing that hey, there's a clock or a gauge that you just you don't know what this gauge is, it's a question mark, but you did something. And if you keep doing this, this is gonna keep increasing. And with some groups saying, hey, what's the skate, what's it doing? will be very powerful just 
not over these technologies, the right term for it. But like, right. This is a, a technique that some players know, okay, we need to be careful because something's happening. While others are going yeah. to go, ooh, how are we cope with the signal? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that is absolutely true. And I forget the game I first saw something like that in, where there was the mystery clock or the mystery timer, the mystery countdown. And I remember it being, yeah, that is a fun, because you can't not look at it. Right. You're obsessed <laughs> with it. The trouble is if you've got five conspiracies to keep track of because you're running vampire, God save the mark, and you can't keep all of those timers on the screen or else now none of them mean anything. It's just like, right. which Having one was one that? Was that Philadelphia? Yeah. Was that the Order of the Red Lotus? Was that the mummy's hand? Ah, yeah, who cares? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in this setting is evil. Just burn them all down. <laughs> exactly. Um, burn them. So it can work, especially if sort of the theme of the game, let's say you're playing, you know, we are... Uh, urban terrorists in Paris and we're going around beating up the hated French government and there's a clock and we know that the clock is will uh, Vidoc uh, the mas- the undead master of the Paris secret police find us or maybe we don't know that and it's like sometimes it clicks but sometimes it doesn't click and sometimes it clicks for no reason we don't know why and then the game is literally about paying attention to that because the game hits its moment when uh, the clock the, is the, the, the results of the clock are revealed. Are revealed, and the and the, uh, and the zombie surete comes to get you, or yeah. whatever it is, um, the vampire surete. And then that's what the game was about: was that being hunted feeling. Um, and the thing is that in a in a game like that, that is going to tend more toward games where you're not changing the world because your priority is stay alive, stay out of the path of undead vidok, not. Um, uh, you know, make sure that everyone's got a, a, a good pre-K program. But, but at the same time, if you tie actions in the world to the managing that clock, then things, things you do that might otherwise not have a real impact could have an influence on the clock yeah, in a meaningful right. way. Right, and then that's, yeah. but, but that makes that, that, it still makes it about the clock, not really about the setting. Yeah. Right? Sure. I mean, because the clock is a, it's a plot element, even though it grows organically out of the setting, but in theory, all plot elements should grow out of the setting. Do you think that it needs to be integrated into general play, or, for example, if only half of the players are interested in the actual mechanical aspects? I think you can absolutely do it as a subsystem for some of the players to do. Yeah. Um, the example that I would use here, although I'm not immediately thinking of an example that does that, but there's a lot of uh, micro games in Aces and Eights, the big, ridiculous Western heartbreaker from Kenzer and Company. But the good thing about that game, I mean, it's a fine game, but the good thing about that game is there's a zillion subsystems. So you show up and it's like, it's Cattle Drive Day, we're playing <laughs> Cattle Drive. And so it's really like, you've got a game with like a bunch of mini games like sneaked into it. Yeah. And those, and Cattle Drive, can have an effect on your actual character sheet, right? At the end of it, you have more or less monies and you might have had a cattle stampede over your arm or whatever. Uh, and so it's a real thing. It's just not the core activity of regular aces and eights. And there's a lot of those little micro games in there. And so you could introduce any number of community improvement or uh, unimprovement subsystems that are micro games and that are played, oh, uh, we can't have full quorum for the game, so let's do a community improvement. Yeah. I mean, the the other possibility, and this is something that I tried experimentally in a game of um, uh, 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 Truth and Justice, the PDQ superheroes game that uh, Chad Undercoffler did, 
was um, my, the game was played in, in decades. Um, every session was something happened in one decade. The characters were immortals. They started out as sort of high uh, uh, pulp heroes and graduated up to Justice League level superheroes by the end of it. And after that one session, I said, what do you want to do to change the world? And they would have a number of experience points. And I had a very, uh, what do I want to say, uh, raw, robot, uh, um, rough, uh, sketchy uh, system that was like this many points to change a country, this many points to change a city, this many points to change a, a, a technology, a religion, or whatever. And it's like, you can spend your experience on yourself, which you'll be doing anyway because you're getting a decade older, but then you got that same amount of experience to change the setting, but it wasn't a full-on, you know, uh, it wasn't an exact thing because it's like, well, I want to change uh, Japan by this much and I'm protecting Japan. I want to keep Japan around. So I know that they've got a lot of points in it. So as the GM, I then sort of adjudicate, how do they change history going forward? So Imperial Japan doesn't fall after 1945. It's safe. It's, it's out of World War II. And so that's something that happens in the setting because that's how they're spending it. And so if I were to do that as a commercial product, I would probably have to spend a lot more effort to nail down what, you know, what sort of the, at least the range of possibilities is. Because I was doing it as my home game, it was just enough to give it to them. They could do it, I could adjudicate it on the fly and go forward. Now, in many, I think even in a published game, you could maybe get away with that. I wouldn't do it myself because I would feel like I was scanting all the GMs who want to do it but aren't me. And, and I, I hope and believe that that Venn diagram exists. Um, <laughs> it may just be me who wants to do it. Um, but, the, uh, but the notion of trying to quantify literal world changes is something that I enjoy just as a, as a mental exercise. I mean, Aria, of course, is the game that was literally only about that and is also famously unplayable. Um, uh, but if you're looking for how it has been attempted with Stone Knives and Bearskins, Aria is an excellent thing to look at. A-R-I-A. From, yes, from my good friends at Last Unicorn Games. God bless them. As we used to ask Christian at, at shows, so when's the English translation coming out? <laughs> this game is so good. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think your, your question brings an interesting uh, additional question. So we're assuming that there's some degree of interest at the table for you know, this world-shaping activity. If there's none, then you're either playing the wrong game yeah, right. or don't do any of it. Um, but let's assume that there's varied levels of interest at the table. Um, what kind of levers can game designers give to the GM or even to the players to control how much time and effort goes into that kind of activity? Well, um, it's obviously, it, that's, that's really depends a lot on what you want your game to do, uh, right? You're, you're not going to be giving lots of levers for that if that's not the point of the game. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if the point of the game is much more uh, players making these changes that then have those effects, uh, you've got to make sure that you've got the, the mechanics in there to do it. Uh, if you don't, if, you do, if, you're, if you're doing too much of that, uh, and that's not the point of the game, what you're going to end up with is just people bailing, yeah. board yeah. the table, or, yeah. or, or basically playing a little world building game that isn't right. relevant to what you were trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you don't want people to bail on it. You don't want people to become obsessed with this subsystem that doesn't actually. Uh, 
is not actually relevant to the game. Well, I mean, let's think about uh, D&D 5th edition, for example, with the downtime activities. And if we, if we accept the premise that D&D is about killing things and taking their stuff, you have this downtime activity which, to some people, is an interesting thing to do and to make an impact on the world. And then you have other people at the table who want to get back to the killing things and taking their stuff. Is there a way that you can kind of satisfy both of those desires in one game? You can say, I mean, well, to the extent that you're satisfied by D&D, apparently there is. <laughs> D&D amply satisfies killing things and taking their stuff. Yeah, that right. is golden and solid and mm-hmm. beautiful and chef's kiss. How satisfied are you with the downtime activities in D&D 5e? Not particularly. Okay. Do you think that changes in the D&D 5e downtime activity rules could be introduced that would satisfy you? I think it could if, if you had a situation where while I'm... So like 5e birthright. Right. If while I'm off running my tavern, the guy who wants to go and kill things and take their stuff is doing a parallel activity that is interesting to him, and then we kind of... No, no, the, no, no rule system makes players interested in things. That's a, that's a don't chase that horse. Right, yeah. It can't be done. Yeah. Okay. But it's not, <laughs> no, 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 no. You be haven't been you, taught right. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I don't feel like that that doing that extra downtime activity is necessarily the point of D&D. Uh, and I don't think... I, I think you may be, you know, looking for something besides no, D&D. No. We, are, we, are, we are arguendo saying that Ryan is not a dysfunctional player. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we're, 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 trying to, we're trying to say, is there a way that Ryan can be made satisfied by this uh, suboptimal... Uh, downtime activity. I, I feel well, like don't introduce the other players who want to play proper D and D. That's your, right. Yeah, right. Weird little problem at all. I'm asking you, right? If you think of birthright, which I think is the strongest mm-hmm. uh, uh, world property, D and D property that yeah. is actually about world alteration mm-hmm. has ever been. Now I can easily visualize a world where there is a five E birthright. Right. Absolutely. No. I'll, absolutely. I'll I can do that. that. Right. But you're not going to get your guys who want to go over and run to the dungeon. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and what you're going to need to do is when you are selling the, the not the game, but when you're selling, selling the activity to your play group, mm-hmm. you're going to either have to sell it like you'd sell Ars Magica, uh, this is our chance to finally build that keep we've all dreamed of, or you're going to have to accept that there are going to be two tracks of play and that the people who want to obsessively run their tavern are going to probably be doing it in Slack or blue booking it, or in some Absolutely, other way right. that is not interfering with, with the, the right and proper activity of D&D, <laughs> the actual murder play of and D&D. theft. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fair. I know I'm playing it wrong. The fact you're that I'm playing wanna, it wrong. The fact that I want to be a baker in my in my downtime. You're playing it pointlessly. <laughs> I'm a big devotee of pointless activity, <laughs> but don't fool yourself. Well, I love I love some pointless gaming activity. <laughs> right, yeah, I, 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 I play little games in between sessions by myself all the time. Right. So, yeah, yeah, all DMs begin as the fans of the pointless. <laughs> <Exactly. activity. laughs> you had a question or a comment? One was uh, that when it comes to what has mechanical reality, uh, the systems that allow you to have the mechanical effects in the game world make it sound. Make it. I think in a lot of a lot of people make it feel more real. So even if it is like obviously a side system. Oh, I can actually run a business in downtime for D&D. Makes it feel more than GM going, sure, you run a business, it's fine, you can have the best of brass starting out, if it's not systemized. Right. And I think one of the places where this sort of breaks down is like when there are games say, hey, it's about this, but this, like, changing the world doesn't actually, isn't really systemized, but we systemize everything else. 
and something that uh, I, I think I think a good example of something that went horribly wrong that has problems is Exalted Third Edition. Uh, now that you we're all friends here, you can say Exalted Third Edition went horribly wrong. <laughs> okay. uh, but uh, so like okay, so Exalted has a giant copy and comment system. Okay, one of the major activities. It has a system for convincing an individual or big happy with one big activity, and it has an enormous elaborate crafting system. Hey, you can make anything that just as long as you're willing to subject the rest of your group to slogging through this amazing, this long, complicated, multi-level process of all these interlocking magical effects and regular effects. Okay. So that feels very real. But when it comes to okay, you're you're a supernatural person who has supernatural fighting abilities, can make physical stuff like nobody's business, and convince individuals to die for you. Well, what about the systems, the systems for building a kingdom or or making the city city not be uh, supernatural, single of evil? Well, there aren't actually mechanical systems that don't quantify that. Yeah, and, and that then becomes a problem where if especially in a system that has no problem being mechanically complex. The, the lack of the war building system. I yeah, think some I mean, I, I, I don't. Uh, I mentioned earlier that that was one of the big problems with Vampire, was that it was always talking a good game about what it was about, and it never let you mechanically do any of that shit. So it wasn't actually about that. It was just a right. game of lies. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I introduced mechanical systems for um, uh, having to be in love with people, uh, mechanical systems for. Um, uh, long-term plans and conspiracies and projects and, you know, all kinds of things that Vampire always claimed it was about, but never me me mechanized. And I, I mean, basically you've restated the first third of the panel um, in much less time, so thanks a lot for <laughs> thanks that. Thanks for that, yeah. Um, is that, yeah, if it doesn't have a mechanical reification that feels like the rest of the game, it is not going to be part of the game, and you might as well not fool yourself. And even when it does have a mechanical reification, as Ryan points out, it can feel like you're um, just being given a kitty toy to play in the corner right. while the real boys and girls are off fighting um, uh, anti-paladins. And so the goal is to, as a designer, not as a GM, because who cares about GMs in this panel, the goal as a designer is to say, what is my game actually about? What is the core activity? What is the point of doing this game instead of any other game? And when you are Jonathan Tweet and Mark Reinhagen designing Ars Magica, their answer was, Home renovation, that's the point. Your wizards, your greedy, introverted loners, uh, your, who are forced to live together, forced to live together and start being real. Are all, and are all about, you know, run those lines of tape down between the, the rooms. I mean, that's, that's Ars Magica's core activity, is yeah. wizards being annoyed enough, annoyed when they have to go adventure. That's because they wanted to stay home and, and, and paint the right research. Way. Right, yeah. And that's, and that's great, and it's a great game, and it does it exactly right, and every part of that feels real and true. And then it falls down when you actually get into like, combat and have to shoot a bow. Eh, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> First of all, that's wizards not the important part of the wizards game. Wizards don't <laughs> shoot bows. They have people for that. Yeah, they have drugs and whatnot. Um, yeah, I think the problem comes in when you have a mismatch between what the game claims it's about and what it's actually about. Which is why, as a designer, you shouldn't make that mismatch. You should right. be truthful. Yeah. I don't think this is a big ask. I'm apparently alone <laughs> in that. <laughs> the classic Heartbreaker. Uh, you have the exquisitely designed characters in the exquisitely designed world with a super complicated magic and combat system and nothing to do. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean the, the classic Heartbreaker, at least, is doing the core activity of another game just worse. So <laughs> that's nice. Um, but it... it it is a rare game 
that like GURPS insists it is about everything and like GURPS can be as annoyingly about anything. I mean, GURPS is a masterpiece of modular design, uh, fractal design, even in the, in the, before fate ever thought of it, um, uh, of the ability of how annoyed do you want to be today? GURPS will make you that annoyed about literally anything you want to do. Or you want to do things fast and simple? Great. GURPS will let you do that. GURPS will not tell you how to do that, but it will absolutely let you do that. And GURPS is maybe one of the very few, even, even Hero, even the other you know, universal systems, I don't think, are as dedicated to making the exciting potentially boring and the boring potentially uh, uh, not time-consuming as GURPS is. Mm -hmm. I mean, GURPS will let you be bored with gunplay if that's what you want in life. GURPS will let you hand-wave inventing penicillin in the Renaissance if that's what you want to do. GURPS works at all the levels as well, you know, for any activity. Now, um, the degree of effort that is then offloaded onto the GM is real, but the systems all exist. And GURPS isn't lying when it says it's a universal system. It legitimately is. But if we are trying to make a game that will sell, we have to sell a actual core activity instead of the potential of all core activities. And that is where we have to make these ugly decisions. But GURPS can be there to show us the way of what does a overly complex system look like for anything? And what does an overly simplified system look like for anything? And then you figure out where in that middle you want to sit down. Now build a game. You have right. GURPS, now build a game. Yeah. Right. Uh, you have a question? I just, uh, in addition to Mar Ars Magica and Underground by Ray Winnings. Ray Winninger. Ray Winninger. Yes. Don't do GURPS. Do do Ars Magica. I mean, do GURPS. Absolutely. <laughs> GURPS is great, but just know what you're getting into. Right? I mean, the yeah. thing about GURPS is you literally can play a game of GURPS in which all you are is accountants. And you just go to accounting jobs, and you roll your accounting skill. <laughs> you can do that all day if you want. You can make accounting just as dice roll full as combat, anything else. as anything else. Accounting maneuvers. Right, accounting maneuvers. You can absolutely put those in. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful system. <laughs> but the thing is, because it is doing that for everything, it's not. It's a game literally about nothing. I mean, not in the fate way that literally about nothing. It's, it, it's actually exactly the same way, but except that GURPS is going to make you work for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other uh, 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 existing prior art you'd recommend we look at? I mean, we've been sort of talking about it off and on, the whole thing. Um, I would say microscope for the far end of that yeah, yeah. Uh, thing. Um, Ars Magica. Kingdoms is by the same guy who did uh, microscope, I believe. Right. It takes it. Well, I was gonna say it takes it up a level, but actually, for microscope, it takes it down a level. level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <coughs> um, you know, uh, Adventure Conqueror King, maybe um, uh, look at Mortal Coil. Definitely, if you're looking at that sort of um, in-game microtransaction sort of uh, world building, which is very cool. I mean, Bir Birthright is a classic example. Kingmaker, uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker is a maybe not quite as good, but still a similar example to that. Um, CF Pathfinder. Uh, what else? Hard manners, kind of. Hard manner. Yeah. I think we've been sort of signposting these as we go through. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot off your fellow students. <laughs> I think we're just about out of time. Okay. They could probably do one more question. Yeah. What was that? And then just for, for ways to integrate it into the game. You 
Absolutely, you got to incentivize. Yep. Um, uh, just mechanize it. Yeah, you mechanize it. Create, give it mecha mechanical sales. You can create a character sheet for whatever you're interested in tracking for the kingdom, right. for the keep, for the tavern, whatever. Give it give it mechanical significance to the and players. Public facing mechanical significance. Yeah, ideally. Yeah, ideally, if you want the players to engage with it, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Damnation City. There, there's another thing that'll that'll keep you busy. It's the Vampire the Requiem uh, source book. It's amazing. Cool. It's by the lovely Will Highmarch. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I think we're out of time. I just got the kind of warning. So thank you guys very much for attending. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Skip to this part of the podcast. Right. <laughs>